I'm Pastor Corey, and you're listening to Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope that this sermon will guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org for more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. Hi friends, I'm Adam Seat, lead pastor here at Orange, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to spend these moments with us in worship together today. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you so much for the way that your word continues to speak to us. It's a word of revealing yourself to us, a word that is our guide, our word that is our hope and strength. And so today, as we have heard your word read, and now is your word to be proclaimed, We pray that your Holy Spirit might speak to us, transform the words that proceed from my mouth, and as they fall upon our ears and penetrate our hearts, may they be changed into the word of God that we need to hear today, as individuals and collectively as one body. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, amen. Over the past six weeks, we have been journeying with Jesus beyond the tomb. Beginning with Easter Sunday and that resurrection appearance, we have been looking at all of the recorded appearances of Jesus through the Gospels. And so after that Easter Sunday, Pastor Brad took us to the appearance to the disciples as they're gathered together in the room. However, Thomas was absent. But a week later, Jesus came once again. We then were reminded of Matthew's account about how the the priests were developing a conspiracy to try to create doubt, and yet the disciples were still gathered there with the resurrected Christ, and yet they still worshipped and some doubted. Pastor Corey took us down Luke's gospel as she went down the road to Emmaus, and we were reminded about how sometimes Jesus comes right there alongside us. And we don't even recognize it. They only saw it once he blessed and broke the bread. Then we turned back to John's gospel once again. And we talked about how Simon Peter and the others had gone fishing. Only to then be met with the fragrance of forgiveness. As Jesus was waiting for them on the shore. And then last week staying there in that passage in the gospel of John. Pastor Corey reminded us of that special moment. That Jesus and Peter shared together that moment of redemption there at the beach. So today, we're returning to Luke's gospel. We're turning to the conclusion of this. But you may have noticed something about all of this. We have shared from Matthew's gospel. We have shared from Luke's gospel. We have shared from John's gospel. However, we have not discussed a resurrection appearance from the Gospel of Mark. There's a reason for that. According to the oldest manuscripts that we can find of the Gospel of Mark, there is not a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Mark 16 tells us that the Marys went to the tomb on the first day of the week. And they see that the stone has been rolled away. And inside, they see a young man wearing white sitting in the tomb. The young man says to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, 
tell Peter and the disciples, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. Now the women leave the tomb. They're trembling and they are astonished. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that is where the oldest copies of the Gospel of Mark that we can find, that's where it just suddenly ends. But my Bible and your Bible have a few more verses after that passage, don't they? But every Bible I've seen has a notation that states that verses 9 through 20 are only found in latter manuscripts, other manuscripts that were added somewhere around the 2nd or 3rd century. And those verses from 9 to 20 are somewhat different. Some of them remind us of the other stories, but others seem to be quite different. As those verses continues, it says that Jesus then appears to Mary Magdalene, who goes on and reports to the others, but they refuse to believe her. He then appears to two of them while walking along the country road, likely a reference to that appearance on the walk to Emmaus. And these two go and report to everyone else, and yet no one believes them either. He then appears to the 11 disciples, and Jesus reproaches them for the hardness of heart and for their not believing the testimony. But then he commissions them. He commissions them in a similar manner to Matthew's gospel. But then we sort of go off the rails a little bit. In verse 17, it picks up, All these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, you will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. and They will recover. (laughs) Casting out demons, speaking in tongues, handling snakes, drinking poison. Again, these signs that are recorded here are not a part of the original text. But at some point in time, they were added in. And because it's not a part of the original text, we don't build the foundation of our faith on that passage. And that's why it's so important that we have four gospel accounts. It's like each one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us pieces to the puzzle. And we can put it all together, all four together, to really see the full picture that God is revealing to us. And so today, we are drawing back to the conclusion of Luke's gospel. Now, the last time that we encountered Luke's gospel was when Jesus appeared on the road to Emmaus, to Cleopas and the other, and they returned to Jerusalem, testifying to their encounter. And they testified that Jesus had indeed risen. And they learned that he has also appeared to Simon. And as they're talking about these things, Jesus appears to them and offers them Peace be with you. Now, I'm fascinated by their reaction because only moments before, they're giving witness. They're testifying that Jesus is risen indeed. They are telling about the appearances and suddenly Jesus is with them and he tells them, peace be with you. And what is their reaction? Speak of the Jesus when he appears. They're terrified. You would think that when they see him, They would have been celebrating, Jesus, dude, it's you. But that's not quite what they do. Scripture says that they're startled and they're terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. A ghost? Really? 
I mean, you were just talking about the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And now he's standing there before you. And you think he's a ghost? Somehow, their actions don't really seem consistent with their words. Well, I guess maybe that's a little bit harsh because it's hard for all of us to consistently have our actions match our words. It's almost cliche to hear people say, I don't go to church because church is full of hypocrites. And it's almost cliche to reply back to them, you're right, but there's always room for one more. I'm just struck by how one moment they're rejoicing and the next moment they're terrified. He's right there with them. And yet they're so frightened. The scripture then says, while the, in their joy they were disbelieving and some wondered. <laughs> Jesus asked for something to eat and they give him a piece of fish and he eats, thus proving he's not a ghost. He's there, Jesus, in the flesh and blood. And but we, as they still see him, they're filled with that joy and also disbelief. We've talked about that a bit, how we can worship and yet doubt. There's joy and yet disbelief. It's natural. That's going to happen. We'll be filled with the joy of Christ and then there will be moments of disbelief. We will be worshiping and yet there will be moments of doubt. But even in the midst of this joy and disbelief, worship and doubt, Jesus then commissions this group filled with their joys and disbeliefs, to be his witnesses. He tells them he is sending them what the Father had promised. Now, we know that to be the Holy Spirit. But they are to wait until they receive that gift. And he then leads them out, he blesses them, and he ascends up into the heavens. And I love the last two verses of Luke's gospel. It says, and they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This time, there is no more worship and doubt. There is no joy and disbelief. Doubt and disbelief had been replaced by a resurrected life. Jesus has left them. He's gone on to the Father. And even in his absence now, they only worship and joy. How did they, how do we get to embrace such a, a resurrected life that cast out worry, cast out fear, cast out doubt, cast out disbelief? How can we take hold of this same resurrected life that this ragtag group of people did? It was so transformational. And you'll see what happens next week when we get to the day of Pentecost. So how did they Get this resurrected life that cast out the disbelief, doubts, and fears. Well, first, I think they had to recapture a sense of who they were. They had to recapture that sense that they are God's people and that God looks upon them and says, you could almost say it with me, that's my baby. They had to be reminded that in spite of doubt, in spite of disbelief, in spite of denial, in spite of betrayal, God still looked upon them with loving eyes. And after failing them so many times and in so many ways, Jesus still came to them. He still sent them. He did not send them because they were perfect. He sent them because they were perfectly loved. He did not call the equipped. 
He equipped the called. Now for us to take hold of that resurrected life, I think we've got to also recapture a sense of who we are. It doesn't matter how many times we have failed him. It doesn't matter how far we may have strayed. There is nothing that you could ever do to make God stop loving you. God looks at you and he says, that's my baby. And there's nothing that will ever change that. So for us to take hold of that resurrected life, we've got to take hold of that, recapture that understanding of who we are as a child of God. Now, not only did they recapture a sense of who they were, they also had to recapture a sense of what they were about. Jesus has personally given them a mission, and oh, what a mission it was. They are to go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of their sins. And do you remember where they were to go about and do that mission? Well, beginning in Jerusalem. And we'll see that take place next week as we celebrate the day of Pentecost. But do you recall where else they're supposed to go and proclaim the message after that? <laughs> they're to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. That's it? <laughs> all the nations? All over the world? Got it. Seems like a monumental task, doesn't it? And for me personally, I would think that I would have been overwhelmed to be told that it was a part of my mission, my life purpose, to go and proclaim this all over the world. But the thing is, for us to take hold of this resurrected life, we've got to recapture that sense of what we're about. And what we're about as followers of Jesus Christ is to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ to all the world. And while that may seem pretty daunting and almost impossible for this ragtag group of people, and even for us, the group of people that we call the people of orange. But you know what? I'm reminded that all the world, we can't do it all at once. We've got to start somewhere. Some of you know that I just, this past week, started back running for the first time in over two years. And about 10 years ago, I ran my first marathon, the Disney World Marathon in Orlando. And as I was preparing and training, I had worked so hard. I had watched my diet so much. But I began to question, would I be able to run all 26.2 miles? I began to doubt myself. I was fearful of even beginning. But a good friend of mine came alongside and he said, you don't have to run 26.2 miles all at once. You just have to run the first mile. And then you have to run that first mile again. And again, and again. See, we can't get to the final destination unless we just begin somewhere. And for us, while our mission may be to proclaim a message of repentance and forgiveness to all the nations, it begins here. It begins now. And if we start now, right here in our corner of the world, we will eventually reach our destination. And as the church, as individuals within the body, it can be daunting to think about our mission is to go so far beyond the bounds of Chapel Hill. But the thing is that we have to start somewhere. And recapturing a sense of who we are and what we are about means we are helping the people in the midst of our lives. We're helping to feed the hungry right here in our community. 
We're like God's first responders. Our mission isn't to heal the sick. Our mission is to take the sick to the healer who binds up every wound, who wipes away every tear, who gives sight to the blind, gives hope to the hopeless. And reclaiming and recapturing that sense of who we are, that's when we can take hold of that resurrected life. Claiming that resurrected life also means that we must recapture the realization of the source of our strength and the source of our power. Before Jesus had ascended into the heavens, he instructed his disciples to stay in the city until you're clothed with the power from on high. And we know that power would come on the day of Pentecost, and that power comes in the form of the Holy Spirit that would live and dwell within all who surrender to Christ. That power is not ours. It's God's. And it dwells right there within you. And you may not even be aware of it. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I really need to call and check in on so-and-so. And so you pick up the phone and you call them. And it seems that it was just the perfect time for you to call them. And you think to yourself, wow, I did a really good thing. Hate to burst your bubble. That wasn't you. That was the Holy Spirit prompting you. And so many times we don't listen to that prompting of the Spirit within us. So many times we don't listen. But the disciples knew that they had to listen to that prompting. And I love that last verse, how we're reminded that at the time that God, we're asking that God would bless someone or something we're all the time asking that God would, would bless America. God would bless our medical professionals and frontline and essential workers. Someone sneezes and we say, God bless you. But in that last verse of scripture that was in this passage that we read, it says something different. It says that they're constantly in the temple blessing God. Blessing God. Not asking for God's blessing, no. They're blessing God. That convicts me. Maybe it convicts you. When was the last time that I blessed God instead of seeking his blessings? How can we bless God? By not trying to live this life on our own strength, but by surrendering. By taking hold of a resurrected life. As we recapture a sense of God within us. You're but a jar of clay. And the living spirit dwells within you. And that is the source of our hope. And our strength. Now the last thing that I think that the disciples had to reclaim. And recapture. To take hold of this transformed resurrected life. Was that they had to recapture the awareness. That all of us are involved in God's plan. All of us. All. It's not just up to the clergy. The church staff. Sunday school teachers, the work of, the, of Christ is the work of all of us. Young, old, new to faith, veterans. It's, if we're going to take this mission seriously, we've got to take all of us. And don't sit there and look at your screen and say, well, surely he's not talking to me because you're exactly the one I'm talking to. Children are right now demonstrating what it means to understand that it takes all of us. As they share messages of hope through writing on the sidewalks and painting rocks. 
People are living out this together through drive-by parades like Brad has already mentioned that we're going to do this week to celebrate our graduates. And this past week, I saw it on the faces of the children as they came for the preschool for a drive-by parade. It takes all of us, all of us together to be able to bring this hope to the world and to share this message of forgiveness and reconciliation. It takes all of us. And it takes us beginning one step at a time. Church, if you hear nothing else that I say today, hear this. You're living life in such a way that one day we will look back at this time and be able to give thanks for and praise to God for how he was able to redeem even a global pandemic. We'll be able to look back and give thanks for the ways that he reminded us that he is gives us the power to do all things through him to transform this world. And we are reminded in this time that we are involved in God's plan. And I give thanks to God for the God who loves us in spite of us and for sharing in unique opportunities to respond to the message of repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and to take that message to all the world. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, you are our hope and our redemption. And through you, Lord, all things are made new. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us and lead us as we seek to be your people. That we would recapture that sense of who we are and what we are about. And the ways that we all can come together to transform the world. So, Lord, by your spirit. Fill us, equip us, and send us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. And please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.